I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Somewhat buried in the nervous and understandably pervasive insistence on simply saving America from a second term of Trumpism is the proposal of a Green New Deal. What was President Roosevelt's original New Deal? What was the social, economic, and political context in the 1930s that made it become reality? And how does that compare to America in 2020? Our guest today, author Steve Fraser, says of the original New Deal, it has served as ground zero for the country's political imagination, the Rosetta Stone for understanding every enduring political development in the last 75 years, end of quote. The rich and powerful elite, of course, opposed the New Deal back then, very strenuously opposed it. Are the same trumped-up worries guiding today's whipped-up fears of a Green New Deal? Does the Green New Deal look too radical for the middle voters, whoever they are? Or might the Green New Deal offer the very real prospect of actually connecting with working people in depressed, hollowed-out rural regions of the country where Trump is now popular? As Fraser asks, might the Green New Deal offer a chance to win back people who voted first for Obama and then for Donald Trump? Though the uh, Green New Deal might now be buried well behind impeachment in the news, uh, Green New- what are the chances of it actually happening and transforming a wounded America as did the former New Deal? Today, we'll examine his new article on Tom Dispatch, The Nation, and elsewhere titled The Greening of the New Deal. Steve Fraser is the author of the just-published Class Matters, The Strange Career of an American Delusion. His previous books include The Age of Acquiescence and The Limousine Liberal. He's co-founder and editor of The American Empire Project. Fraser's new book is Mongrel Firebugs and Men of Property, Capitalism and Class Conflict in American History. I can't wait to read that. Uh, Steve Fraser, thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. Well, as we look back on the 20th century, there can be no question that Roosevelt's New Deal was one of the most significant markers in American history. In what ways has it, quote, served as ground zero for the country's political imagination for both traditional non-Clintonite Democrats and pro-big business right-leaning Republicans? Tell us about its shadow over today's neoliberalism and the new conservatism, which was Reagan. Yes, it, the, the New Deal uh, does indeed uh, cast a long shadow that uh, extends into our own new century. Uh, initially, uh, some of the great post-New Deal political landmarks, like Truman's attempt to extend the social welfare measures of the New Deal into areas of housing and health, called the Fair Deal, and then Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, it's 
uh, war on poverty, uh, Medicare and Medicaid, were uh, uh, subsequent attempts to extend the reach of the initial New Deal and its attempt to provide some degree of security and equality for working people. And very explicitly, of course, Truman was, was Roosevelt's vice president until, he, until uh, FDR died. Uh, both he and Johnson and the Democratic Party in general uh, acknowledged its great debt and its commitment to extending the, the social reach of the New Deal in the 20 or 30 years that followed the initial New Deal. Uh, then, of course, we have lived more recently uh, in our political history through a period of anti-New Deal uh, uh, political organizing, especially on the part of the Republican Party, but even within the Democratic Party. Yes. Uh, the new conservatism that be- that came into office with Reagan in 1980, but was born before that, and um, and the neoliberalism, which characterizes our uh, up to the moment, really characterizes our current form of political economy, were reactions against the New Deal. Uh, the argument was the New Deal was too intrusive. Big government was becoming uh, too big. Uh, that uh, uh, that New Deal uh, welfare programs were. Uh, bankrupting the state, that New Deal regulatory activities, the New Deal was famous for regulating both industry and finance, the argument became, well, they're hampering economic growth, uh, they're, they're stopping innovation, uh, they're, they're uncompetitive and need to be eliminated, and indeed, many of them were. Uh, the first deregulation happens under a Democratic president, Jimmy Carter. Uh, it, it proceeds uh, uh, much more widely under Reagan, and one of the most most uh, critical uh, pieces of New Deal financial regulation, namely the Glass-Steagall Act, which yeah. separated investment from commercial banking to avoid the kind of crash that happened in 1929, is eliminated by Bill Clinton's yes. administration in, 19, in uh, 1999. Uh, so, uh, but each of, each of these seminal moments in our history uh, has harkened back to the New Deal, either for it or against it. And many on the on the left wing of the political spectrum today uh, dream about restoring and, and perhaps expanding the, uh, the New Deal, which has been so undermined during the last 25 or 30 years, while those on the right uh, raise the specter of collectivism, of socialism, of communism, and of fiscal insolvency to discredit any attempts to restore the New Deal. Fascinating. They, uh, they have uh, they the Republicans, uh, the uh, the right wing. I hesitate to call them conservative because they're not conserving anything really. Yeah. But they've been against the New Deal. That's been their raison d'être for a long, long time, since the fifties. And and you hear some of the language today about oh regulation, rolling back regulation, that uh, the Democrats are interfering with uh, the free market and and holding back progress. It, it boy, it, it really uh, set the mold for decades and decades of politics uh, yet to come. Yes, that's right. Those were classic arguments made back in the 1930s against Roosevelt that he was going to bankrupt the country and turn it into some kind of uh, Bolshevik uh, Soviet <laughs> uh, uh, society uh, by uh, enlarging the role of the government. So these kinds of charges that we hear today, Trump and his cronies calling every single thing offered by progressive Democrats socialism or communism right, even, right. is just a, an echo of what the right wing was saying about FDR's uh, various New Deal reform measures uh, 75 years ago. 
Uh, indeed. And and here, so here we are. It, I, I mean, I I have a political button that says we want FDR again, and I I wish <laughs> we could do that. That's cool. Well, you know, do we get FDR again? I think I think the 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 issue is. You you only got FDR then, back then in yeah. the 30s. First of all, because there was this existential crisis that yeah. the country faced, namely the Great Depression. Uh, nobody today, alive today, can 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 imagine how devastating that that depression was. Uh, you know, 25 to it depends how you do the counting to 35 percent of the workforce was completely unemployed. There were mass bankruptcies, mass evictions, bank failures. Uh, you know, bread line uh, you name it. I mean, this was a trauma second only to the Civil War in the way it affected the national psyche. Uh, so for, you start from there. It made some kind of action essential. And then what you also had then, which my article talks a t- a tints about, is you had a long tradition uh, extending from the Gilded Age of the late 19th right. century right up until the Great Crash of 1929 of anti-capitalist sentiment. A, a, and it took many, many forms, a very militant labor movement, a populist movement, um, an antitrust movement. We, these were movements of millions of people protesting against and organizing against the the kind of laissez-faire capitalism that predominated in 19th and early 20th century America. So when you get to the Great Depression, you have that culture of resistance uh, to draw upon, uh, and, and it inspires millions of people. So that you get in the 1930s this very powerful insurgent labor movement, uh, which is standing before the country not only in behalf of the interests of its own members, be they steel workers or rubber workers or electrical workers, but offers a program for the whole country and, and says to uh, and says to America, it's 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 social welfare, it's the commonwealth and not wealth that yes. we need to protect. And Roosevelt uses that. Uh, he uses that language. He condemns the uh, the Tories of industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, he condemns the money changers and, and threatens to drive them out of the temples. Or these are all quotes from his, mm-hmm. you know, he, he, he talks about economic royalists, but without that powerful mass movement right. and without that long previous tradition of anti-capitalist resistance to a kind of savage version of capitalism, uh, it's unlikely there would be a Roosevelt as we understand him uh, today. Yeah, and it's 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 not there now. It really isn't there. And I think you know, which which brings us to the Green New Deal is that it, it, it doesn't have the same kind of long history or energy. But it seems that climate change is something that is starting to unite people uh, throughout America and and create some sort of new energy. Uh, you know, I mean, we don't have the catastrophe, the economic catastrophe that there was before Roosevelt's New Deal, but we can see a catastrophe ahead, you know, with the polar ice caps melting, with uh, having less and less shoreline. Uh, you know, p- people can, can see real uh, uh, incre- you well, know. I think you're you're absolutely right. The diff- both about the differences and the similarities. The difference, of course, is that uh, although each day makes this more and more reality, it still seems a somewhat distant threat. Yes, or yes. It depends on how you measure how distant that threat is. Some you know some scientists say we got ten years to reverse the the the, the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, or, or the planet is cooked. And others say something else. But the point is. 
in the Great Depression, nobody was denying there right. was a Great Depression. <laughs> no matter what, whether you were right-wing or left-wing or middle-wing, the, the Great Depression was simply the brute fact of life. We have been facing climate change for decades yeah. now, yeah. but people, both fossil fuel industry interests and other people, have been able to kind of delay any action about that because it seems like a hypothesis. Well, it's yeah. going to happen maybe, and it might happen in 10 years, might happen in 100 years. It, it doesn't have, it doesn't, until recently, right. I think you're right, until recently, hasn't had the immediate, the force of immediacy that the Great, Pres the Great Depression had uh, back uh, in the 30s. But you're quite right. We are beginning to see the first signs of really mass mobilization uh, 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 around the issue of climate change, which I think gives the Green New Deal proposal uh, some of its uh, great energy in life and why so many people, especially young people, oh, yeah, uh, relate to it. Because their future, their future in, yeah. I, I don't know about my future, but the future right. of, of people in their 20s and 30s definitely involves uh, huge changes in ways of life, great privation, great suffering as a consequence of climate change. So they begin to react to it. And I'll tell you the other thing that I think is combined to make the Green New Deal and mass mobilization more a fact, a growing fact of our lives today. The Great Recession of 2007 and 2008 put the lie to the notion that uh -huh. financial, financialization of the economy and capitalism was solving all these problems. That was a near catastrophe itself. Yeah. Never became quite the catastrophe the Great Depression did, but it was scared the life out of many people about how insecure and dangerous and unequal a mm -hmm. capitalist uh, economy and, and political life had become in America, and it energized a, a movement that obviously this is the Occupy Wall Street phenomenon. Right. And, and I think Bernie Sanders, yep. as we know him today, uh, he's been talking about this, this kind of talk for 40 years, oh, yeah. but very few were listening. And then you get the Great Recession, and suddenly Bernie Sanders is perhaps the most uh, trusted and and a political figure in American public life because he's been saying for a very long time capitalism does not serve the needs of ordinary working people and generates the kind of inequality that plagues our society. And, and I think the Sanders phenomenon plus the Great Recession has helped to make the Green New Deal a, an object of, uh, 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 as a kind of magnet for, for organizing because uh -huh. the Green New Deal promises not only to address the issue of climate change, but to do it in a way that meets the needs of, of all kinds of working people, uh, uh, whether, whether by creating millions of new uh, highly skilled, well-paid jobs, uh, by guaranteeing uh, the replenishment of the infrastructure of the country. Yes. You know, we are living in the infrastructure that was built by the first New Deal. Absolutely. It's old and yes. crumbling and yes. decaying in every way. Our roads, our bridges, our tunnels, everything is decaying. And uh, we, we lag way behind other industrial countries in the quality and, and, uh, and safety of our infrastructure. Well, the Green New Deal promises to rebuild that. The Green New Deal promises to address the housing crisis, both by retrofitting, retrofitting 
homes and as well as commercial buildings and therefore conserving energy, but also by building affordable housing for people. So the Green New Deal, and also it promises to, to cite a lot of the new renewable energy right. projects in areas that have been devastated over the last 30 or 40 years, both in rural America and what was once heartland industrial America, what that's been turned into ghost towns thanks yes. to deindustrialization. So the Green New Deal kind of combines all of these 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 uh, these uh, move these these desires these fears uh, and um, and that's why I think it, it has the kind of growing power that you alluded to. Oh, I hope so. And uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, uh, keeping democracy alive. Our guest today, Steve Fraser. We're talking about who's written an article in the Nation called. The greening of the New Deal. Can it happen? What is it? And one of the, uh, you know, media and politics is theater. Let's face it. And that 16-year-old girl, Greta Thunberg from uh, Sweden, I believe it was, when she says, we need to get over the fairy tale of infinite growth. And I think that's that's starting to connect with people. Bringing it back to Washington. What is, I mean, everybody's heard the term Green New Deal. What is it really? What is the legislation? Who is behind it? Tell us a bit about what specifically well, we're talking about. Well, the legislation emerges out of what has become the very um, uh, 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 powerful, rather muscular, progressive wing of the Democratic Party. So, uh, you know, the, the, the legislative, it's not, not legislation yet, it's a kind of proposition. It hasn't actually taken legislative form, but was proposed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, as who everybody knows, and by a the Massachusetts, uh, uh, the senator from Massachusetts, uh, Senator Markey. Yes. Uh, they introduced this proposal, um, and uh, and it's the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, which kind of identifies with Bernie Sanders and and Elizabeth Warren and uh, and and that wing of the party that has been pushing it forward. And what it does promise to do is to undertake a massive, just like the New Deal did, except the scale will be greater, uh, a massive investment of public funds in addressing the the fossil fuel energy crisis, seeking in the next 10 or 20 years to have a, to have net zero carbon emissions by transforming our energy sector with, with, with all the various kinds of renewables we're familiar with, uh, by, uh, investing in, uh, uh, the, uh, in, in, in the, uh, replenishment of the country's, uh, infrastructure, uh, and it has, and by doing this both with public funding and public banks, as well as leveraging private investment uh, in various forms of renewable energy um, and, and, and pledges in the process to create millions of, of jobs, which it, if this is undertaken, it would create millions of jobs. And we're talking about, you know, we're, Trump boasts a lot about the, the great economy he's presumably given us, which I think he has zero to do with. But nonetheless, the unemployment rate is very low. That's yes, true. Yes. But, but, but the, un- the employment is mainly happening in the low-wage, yeah. precarious, most precarious sectors of the economy where there's no job security, no unions, uh, the wages are low, uh, the, the level of skill is low. What the Green New Deal is promising to do is to transform that economy, make it a high-wage, high-skill, unionized, because the Green New Deal is very pro-union, so that workers have a real representation, not only in collective bargaining their own contracts, but even sitting on the boards of, of uh, companies that engage in this new uh, public inve- or private investment leveraged by public money, uh-huh. um, public banks, and so on. So it gives working people a real voice 
uh, which uh, they have, and creates a kind of prosperity that is not only that begins to close the obscene wealth wealth and income gap that we're all become painfully aware of over the last 25 years. The country has never been as unequal in the distribution of income and wealth as it is today, and the Green New Deal promises to reverse that, because how is it going to pay for this enormous expenditure of public funds? Well, it's going to tax the people who, for, uh, the people and institutions who for decades now have avoided most or all taxation, major corporations and what is, you know, colloquially known as the 1% or the 10, or the, or the one-tenth of 1%, um, who uh, 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 control vast amounts of wealth, um, and so the, the tax proposals that come along with the Green New Deal are also promises to redistribute income in a more socially just way. What a concept! <laughs> and bad to say that this becomes this is has become foreign to American ears until recently because yeah, we lived through a long period that I called an age of acquiescence, during which yeah. uh, you know we 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 hero worshipped. Uh, Wall Street financiers, you know, as they were, as if they were great gurus, and even people like Trump. Trump was a hero, yeah. uh, and there were dozens of other, you know, Goldman Sachs. They were they were heroic, you know. They were they were pioneers in financial innovation until they almost brought the whole house down. So we're getting over that, <laughs> and I think the the distrust of the one percent and of corporate America. Yeah. I mean, the, these corporations like Amazon or Walmart, oh. they, not only do they avoid paying taxes, their operations are often subsidized by tax exemptions yes. uh, and various other kinds of subsidies and loans from local municipalities and so on. I mean, the fact that, you know, Amazon failed to, lo- to locate its headquarters in New York City is one of the rare instances in which a city refused to be held at ransom. Uh, so, you know, uh, you know, Amazon wanted all kinds of goodies from the city, and thanks to a kind of grassroots uprising, they were denied that. And that's a sign of this new restiveness and resistance in the country to the people and institutions that have been running the show for a very long time. I would, uh, you know, Gore Vidal and others have talked about uh, socialism for the very richest among us and, and you know, yes. bare-knuckle right. free market. Right. Government, yeah, like the bank bailouts. That's exactly. socialism for the, for the banks. You know, instead of the banks having to bear and suffer the consequences of engaging in high-risk affairs, we bail them out. Yes. That is, we are the taxpayer. We, yes. America, uh, collectivizes uh, their risk. And uh, that's a kind of uh, so, that's a kind of socialism. Absolutely. Uh, well, this happens all all the time. This is the way the society is run, and it's only now that various uh, movements have begun to say enough, enough is enough. And, yeah. I, and I date that really. I mean, as you can go back. There's always been some of that. Yeah. But it really but... took off after uh, the Great Recession. I think is when it really, really began to yeah, pick up. Yeah, I think it did. And one of the reasons I think why Democrats lost is because. Uh, the DNC, not the regular people in the party, but the DNC, who is theoretically there to work for us, turned its back on labor. They 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 took them for granted, and basically the Clintons went to Wall Street, you know, for big money, make it easier because it's all you know campaign contributions. You, you got to have them. I wonder if are you? I mean, unions have been. Uh, Hurt? Huh. Let's face it. Do they are they yeah. are starting to get on board with the Green New Deal? Do you think? Well, and that's an interesting question. First of all, let me say I think you're exactly right. The, the Democratic Party lost its soul, 
and that soul was captured by the Democratic Leadership Council, <laughs> which Bill Clinton, when he was governor of Arkansas, Ooh, ran. Yes, yes. And the Clintons have run that party. I don't mean, I don't, they're not personally responsible for this, but a whole wing of the party that rooted itself in Wall Street and elsewhere in corporate America took over the party, turned its back on the working classes, of, uh, which had been the heart and soul of the New Deal Democratic Party. And, and now, and you know what one of the consequences of that was? Trump. You see, Trump is this, he's a con man, obviously, and, uh, and, uh, and a buffoon in many ways, but a very dangerous one because oh, yeah. he's, a, he's a billionaire who plays the part of a populist. Uh, you know, he appeals oh, yeah. to work, he tries to appeal in various ways. I mean, he's xenophobic, he's racist, he, he makes a lot of appeals. But one of his appeals is a legitimate one that working people uh, all over industrial America were abandoned by yes. the Democratic Party and, and even by the Republican Party because that was there was a kind of bipartisanship when he came to that, and that he was going to speak for them against the establishment. You know, he's a kind of, he, he paints himself as an anti-establishment figure, despite the fact that he comes from that establishment, inherited his wealth from his father, and has lived his whole life, life uh, uh, you know, on, on Wall Street or in the real estate industry and so on. But, that was, so, but the thing is, the neoliberal Democratic Party yeah. earned the contempt of uh, many millions of working people who yes. knew that the Clintons and that party no longer had their interest at heart. Yep. And so the horrible truth is you get Trump. And I think one proof of that, you know, uh, people say that, well, what's happening here is Trump is, speaks for the racist white working class. Yes. I think that's too simplistic and wrong a notion. There's no question there are ra racist appeals all the time in what Trump and his cronies do. But it, what the most interesting political phenomenon to me is the fact that this, this white working population in various key, you know, uh, right. uh, critical states like, you know, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, the, the state, you know, these are the, 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 the key states. The key. They voted for Obama twice in 2008 and 2012 because Obama seemed, he wasn't, but he mm. seemed to be breaking with, you know, yes we can was his slogan. I don't know, yes we can what, but yes we can was his slogan. And it seemed to, to people to be a real break with the Clinton form of the Democratic Party. It turned out not to be, yeah. but it seemed that way. And so people uh, were prepared to vote for him and vote for him two times. And one of the interesting things about so, so, so a certain segment of that white working class population wasn't motivated by by race, right. by the by by the way they've been treated for a long time by the Democratic right. Party. Right. One of the most interesting to me phenomena of the 2016 primary season, you saw this all the time, was that many people polled, not polled, but surveyed uh, and asked and interviewed, said, "Well, I don't know who I'm going to vote for. I might vote for." Uh, Trump, or I might vote for Bernie Sanders. Yes, this is when absolutely. The primaries were going on. Yep. There's, there's, that's a fascinating phenomenon because yep. Sanders was finally speaking to their resentment of mm -hmm. what the Democratic Party had become. Yep. And I think the Green New Deal has the potential to bridge that same gap uh, by, by recognizing that all kinds of marginalized populations, including white ones that have suffered the consequences of deindustrialization and rural depopulation, uh, that their needs to be, uh, needs, need, need to be addressed as well. Yep. Now, unions are... are uh, a, a tricky matter. Some unions are very pro uh, 
Green New Deal. Uh, the Service Employees International Union, which is the biggest union in the country, is very uh, pro. The Communication Workers of America, very pro Green New Deal. But some of the unions that are tied to the fossil fuel industry, uh-huh. coal mining, obviously, but all kinds of other uh, unions uh, representing workers in one way or another in the energy sector, in the old energy sector, have said, no, uh, we, we don't want to lose our jobs. So the labor movement is split. You know, they fray that if there's this change from uh, coal and oil and so on uh, to renewable energy, they'll lose their jobs. And and so right now we had a, have a divided labor movement. Uh-huh. I, I do think the Green New Deal has the potential to heal that division with its vision of creating millions of new jobs uh, and good ones for, for people and unionized jobs. Unionized. They're very, it's very important that, uh, you know, the neoliberalism hates unions. Oh, yeah. they, part of the legacy of neoliberalism over the last 30 years has been the destruction of the yes. labor movement in America so that today it represents a pathetic in the private sector 6% of the workforce. Yeah. I think 10 or 11% if you include public workers. Uh, that, is, that, is, that is appalling. Uh, you know, in, in mid-1950s America, oh. more than a third of the working class was organized in unions, and the rest of the working class benefited because yep. corporations, afraid that unions might encroach on their territories, matched the wage and benefit levels that unionized uh, companies mm-hmm. had were compelled to provide for their workers. We need to get back to those days. And I got to tell you, I recently was in South Central Pennsylvania, and I talked to some people. It's big Trump country, and it's hollowed out. You know, there's like no real jobs there. Uh, it's it's not a people are playing by the rules and not getting ahead, and right. they love Trump. And I I was thinking, you know, it was kind of depressing to put it mildly, but I was thinking, what can we do? What can we do well, to connect I, I, with these people? And I think the Green New Deal can. I, I, yeah, I think the Green New Deal can, can can do that, and I think also maybe I'm uh, maybe this is uh, I'm whistling in the dark, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump promised to do a lot of things, which he has failed to do, to address the needs of people in that region and similar regions around the country. Those people are still, those jobs he was going to bring back to America, those plants he was going to reopen and so on, that has not happened. And in a variety of other ways, he's failed to keep these kind of bread-and-butter commitments to people suffering in that kind of way. And so, you know, it's one thing to say he in 2016, okay, he says he's going to do this, and I can't stand the Democrats anymore, you know, I'm going to vote for him. It's a different matter in 2020 yeah. to look back and say, well, what exactly did he do that, that changed my life and the lives of my fellow uh, members of my community and union and so on, and the, and the, and the record is, 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 uh, is, uh, is, is, quite, is quite poor. So I think, uh, you know, uh, everybody learns uh, by experience, I think. I and, hope. <laughs> uh, people may... Uh, may address that, not to mention the various other reasons they may not like Trump anymore, of which there, there's legion. Of but they, they love him in, in uh, rural Pennsylvania. They really do. And, yeah. You know, I, I, I've often wondered why uh, Democrats well, don't talk about public works jobs. Unstable core um, Trump base. Oh, yeah. Very loyal. It's yep. very ardent. Um, and and, there, and to some degree is driven by the most toxic uh, emotion, political emotions, you know, xenophobia and yeah. racism and a variety of, you know. But if we go in there and help them, I think if we go in there, we Democrats were to do a new deal, a Green New Deal, and create jobs and bring some degree of, dare I say, hope into that community, that's going to connect with them. I don't know what else will. You know, if we go in there with the elitist, you know, you're a basket of deplorables, 
Hello. Well, that, yeah. And, and you know what? That, that was a slip of the tongue, which was just like Freud said, a slip of the tongue that tells you a lot about yes. the person who slipped. Uh, I know. And, 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 it, it really was. I mean, that is, and they and people in in southeastern Pennsylvania or wherever, they've known that for a long time, long before she said deplorables. They knew that's how this elite Wall Street-based yes. wing of the Democratic yes. Party felt about them. Yep. This, you know, this is fly over America, get yeah. out of it, you know, the, know. Uh, yeah, and so. So um, uh, uh, I think you're right. I think that the Green New Deal has that kind of potential to penetrate these areas. Look, to some degree, no. You know, to some degree, people are going to remain loyal to Trump for whatever yeah. uh, reasons they do. But I think it can be deeply, uh, it can be deep incursions and and recruits to uh, a, a healthier kind of political um, outlook via the Green New Deal. I think, I, I like to think so. I mean, if they can see it and feel it. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with Steve Fraser about the uh, potential of a Green New Deal. Now, back then, in the older New Deal, I'm going to flip back and forth, uh, yeah. that, that, you know, they were ap- apoplectic about increasing deficit spending in a time of depression. Now, today's Republicans... Uh, you know, I, I don't know if they're focused on any uh, potential effects of deficit spending within the Green New Deal. And, and, you know, where are the deficit hawks these days? Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, there, it, when wrote, the two, as I, my article uh, suggests, there, there, there were two principal uh, right-wing criticisms of the New Deal, uh, the original New Deal. One was that it was fiscally irresponsible and would bankrupt the country if it engaged in deficit spending. We have to remember that deficit spending was alien to American statecraft in 1930, 32, you know. Uh, that had never, there had always been some, obviously you go to war in the Philippines or in, in, in Cuba and you've got to spend a little money to, you know, to arm the army, but there had never been major deficit spending in the interest of economic recovery. It was a strange idea. Um, and, 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 and so the first accusation was that this was this was reckless it would bankrupt the, uh, uh, the it would bankrupt the treasury and destroy the economy and the second was that what roosevelt was doing was communist and those were the two that he was collectivizing america giving the government uh, much too much power and those were the two charges today the uh, the right wing still uh, uh, is as uh, you know disinterred that old red baiting socialist communist line about <laughs> the green new deal and yeah. about anything the progressive democrats do <laughs> nowadays. Uh, but the deficit spending thing is a little tricky because uh, the, 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 the kind of mainstream Republicans of 20 or 30 years ago that used to harp all the time about yeah. they, they justified austerity and all kinds of shredding of the social safety net because we had to balance the budget. We couldn't engage in this deficit spending. It was killing, going to kill the economy. Right. You don't hear that anymore because, Gee. in fact, they have themselves voted for huge deficits in 2019 or 20, the, the, the budget deficit will be $1 trillion. Uh, and that's a, that's a Republican... That's right. Um, uh, that 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 that's been produced by especially military spending. There's yes. no limit on military spending, but other kinds of spending as well. Uh, so that the deficit spending, but so the the, the 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 accusation now is not deficit spending. It's that it's fiscally irresponsible. That's what you see a lot of these right wing people. Uh-huh. You can't fund it. There's no way to pay for uh-huh. this uh, Green New Deal that you're talking about. Uh, 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 but what they're really 
saying is we don't like the way you propose to pay for it, which is by taxing at steeper and steeper levels both corporate and wealthy right. America. Right. Uh, they don't like that, and so but they don't they don't they don't quite say that. They would rather just say you know it's <laughs> it's kind of reckless and there's no way to pay. Uh, uh, pay for it. You know, they forget that in the 1950s, the top income uh, tax bracket was uh, for for um, for uh, corporations was 90 percent. It's unthinkable today yeah. uh, that that, that uh, but that was the heritage of the New Deal. The New Deal began this kind of income redistribution through the tax system, and and it continued for 20, 25, 30 years for as long as the New Deal was in power. These things seem unthinkable to us today. Uh, but what these right-wing people who are criticizing the Green New Deal uh, for its profligacy are worried about is that that old kind of redistributive tax system uh, may be reborn and hurt the interests that they uh, yeah. most uh, committed to defending. And, of course, the reality was the 50s was a time of great and widespread prosperity. There was a huge middle yes, class back One of the justifications for <laughs> income inequality and wealth inequality today is that, well, that's what drives the economy. Look yeah. at how great our economy is. But actually, uh, the rate of growth, until rather recently, has been small compared to the rates of growth during precisely the period of New Deal, New Deal hegemony, when income inequality was compressed the most it's ever been. So during all those decades, yes. uh, during which there were high individual and corporate tax rates, in which the, 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 the gap between uh, the 1% and the 9 narrowed and narrowed and narrowed, were periods of great economic growth. Yes, they were. They were. Well, one thing, I w- and Bernie is only slightly to the right of Eisenhower on domestic guidance. Uh, economic issues. <laughs> People forget that. Right. He was a Republican, right. too. But what about the charge that the Green New Deal would have the big government choosing winners and losers in the energy field, for example? What about that? Yeah, well, you know, what, what, what I think uh, uh, is missed is that the Green New Deal is a really an attempt to democratize our economy, not to make it a kind of um, uh, the elite uh, machinery, uh, the machinery of of empowered political and economic elites as it is today, but to democratize it so that all of these uh, new investments in re- various forms of renewable, renewable energy will be undertaken by representative bodies, not just federal bodies, but local state bodies, democratically elected. There'll be uh, 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 boards established to administer, inaugurate and administer these various renewable projects, which will include representatives of the community, of, 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 of labor, where labor is organized to do so. Um, so it's really a democratization of the economy and, and making the state into the instrument of popular will rather than some uh, aloof, distant, uh, as it is today, uh, 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 gathering of, uh, of a kind of uh, uh, bureaucratic and uh, uh, political uh, uh, elite that, uh, that, that on its own stick um, uh, arbitrates the fate of millions of working people. So I, I really think the Green New Deal moves in the opposite direction. It wants to establish public banks, for example, uh, to, to provide the credits. Obviously, it's not just deficit spending that will finance the Green New Deal, but loans. And, and these will be public loans by public banks, regionally based or, or, or maybe based uh, uh, even locally, that will, be, that will include public representatives on their boards of directors. Um, so this is a way of inviting 
the the uh, ordinary people and their representatives into the actual nitty gritty of putting together a new economy and thereby a new society that that values uh, the common wheel rather than wealth. What a concept yet again. Well, there are those who insist the New Deal didn't work. There's always historical revisionists, and sometimes they're accurate, sometimes they're not. They point out to the so-called Roosevelt Recession, 1937-38, what were the accusations and what was reality? Well, the accusation is in part true. There was a great recession, very severe in 1937-38. Unemployment didn't go back up to what it had been in 1932, but it went up considerably. Uh, there was there was quite a severe. But it's the cause of that recession that is usually omitted from right-wing uh, yeah. claims that the New Deal failed. The cause was, see, Roosevelt himself as much as he's a hero of American political life in the 20th century, was himself by no means committed to deficit spending. In fact, when he first takes office, he's for the balanced budget, which was the orthodoxy of those days. Uh, he even, I mean, I mentioned this in the article, I, I don't know if your listeners will, will know this, but uh, there was a, a what was called the Bonus Army, a gathering oh, of yeah. uh, World War I veterans who were due uh, a, a, a series of bonuses in, in return for their service to the country during the war, and a, and a, a gathering of these uh, veterans uh, in Washington, D.C., was demand in the midst of the Depression, this is in 1932, right. uh, demanding of the uh, administration, which then was the Hoover administration, that it accelerate the payment of those bonuses in order to give, provide some you know, material relief to these people. Right. And Hoover in, in responded by sending the troops in mm-hmm. to... Uh, 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 disperse, burn yeah. to the ground the yeah. tents that these veterans were living in in uh, in Washington, and disperse the what was called the bonus army. Right. Now R- Roosevelt didn't do that, but when he took office, he too refused to uh, to make those accelerated bonus payments because he said it would it would it would p- put the government in deficit. I'm saying all this to explain that he was never a complete convert. He what he was was a very flexible guy, and uh, someone who said, "Well, oh, that didn't work." I'll try something else. Um, you know, he wasn't a prisoner of an ideology, and consequently, deficit spending becomes something that he does embrace in, during the middle years of the New Deal, in, during which you have this quite considerable economic recovery, 1933, 34, 35, 36 into 37. But he 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 gets cold feet that that the deficit is growing too big and begins to shut down some of the uh, various forms of deficit spending uh, yeah, he had inaugurated, the administration had inaugurated, and it sends the country into a spiraling uh, recession from which it doesn't recover until uh, the war. Right. Until, well, not the war, uh, the, the, the public the spending. Europe in 1939, at which point the United States becomes the, the great armory uh, for uh, the Allies, and so you get, you, got, you get a lot of war production even before America actually enters public the works jobs, it yes. pulls the economy out of that recession. Yeah, public works jobs. You know, the, the Democrats yeah. always, as well as Republicans, you know, follow themselves in supporting the military. And the the, the economic benefit, whatever there is, of, of, of military spending is public works jobs. I, I You know, can, I don't think people see that right now. 
that there's right. a better way to invest those dollars and get much more bang for your buck. Much, much more, much more uh, in terms of jobs, absolutely. And, and it's interesting in this connection to note that some of the public works that Roosevelt initiated were in the area of, uh, they would look modest to us today, but in conservation, yep. uh, preventing soil erosion, yep. reforesting the country. This was all part of that New Deal attempt to undo the damage that a kind of more savage version of capitalism had uh, had, uh, had had inflicted on the country. And I wonder, do you think that, I mean, we have a very low unemployment rate now. Do you think that Green New Deal is more perceived as a job destroyer or a job creator as of now? I'm talking about perception. And if the middle, you well, know, I think uh, probably that's a mixed, uh, mixed, a mixed picture. Obviously, there are people who worry, who are right tied in in one way or another to the fossil fuel industries uh, about it being a job uh, destroyer. Uh, you know, uh, no more coal mining, uh, you know, uh, shifting over out of petroleum, no more pipelines, no more, you know, this and that, you know, all that kind of stuff, no more drilling, uh, you know, uh, uh, and they, they're, they're scared, and, and, and Trump and people uh, like that uh, on the right play on those fears, yes. which is, which I think right now, probably, I'm just guessing, I'm sure. speculating, I have no real information about this, probably there are more people afraid it'll be a job destroyer than creator, but I think that's that that's not difficult to change as people get more and more familiar with the nitty-gritty of what a Green New Deal would look like in terms of all the new industries it would give rise to and right. so on. And how would, I mean, in the, the actual process, uh, as you say, the New Deal remains, uh, like its predecessor, uh, focused on leveraging private investment with public funds. What would that look like? Yeah. How would that work? What do you mean? Well, I don't know uh, in, in this specific case because the Green New Deal has not yet reached that level of specificity. But for, if you go back, for example, to uh, the Green, uh, the old New Deal, take the Tennessee Valley Authority. That's a, a, the TV, usually known colloquially as the TVA. All right, that's a public undertaking. It's a pu- public undertaking to provide power, electrical power, to a vast. Uh, underdeveloped region of the country in, in those years, and, and, and that's Appalachia, basically, in that whole vast Tennessee Valley. So a lot of public money spent on that, and public power facilities created. But what that led to, and was intended to lead to, was the also all kinds of private industry uh, uh, in, in incentivized to invest in that region, whether they were uh, going to sell uh, refrigerators or telephones to homes that used to have no electricity, or they were going to build uh, railroad lines into areas that no, uh, used to not need them but now did, or they were going to, in other words, in a variety of ways, that, or even, even, even competing power facilities, that public investment in the TVA uh, led to all kinds of private investments. It, it made, for example, by addressing the question of, of, uh, of irrigation and, and power generation, it made all kinds of farming, farming possible uh, that had been very marginal up until that time because of the tendency of the uh, of flooding or uh, soil erosion and so on. So that, that's what it means to, to use public funds to uh, incentivize further private investment. So if if I had you know a private enterprise and and was interested in you know participating in this and perhaps you know doing something that would be profitable, 
how, how might it, how might it work? You know, you'd have to see what the government is investing in, and because the government wouldn't and do it all by itself, as it does now, incentives for certain kinds uh-huh. of. Let's say, let's say you're a solar power manufacturer. Sure. You know, let's say. Uh, you only want to start. Uh, making some solar panels. Well, the government, a Green New Deal government, will provide, because they're, you're, it, it, they're not, they will provide incentives to that. That could be the same kinds of incentives that you see today, certain uh, tax exemptions mm-hmm. for a while, or other kinds of uh, government loans to supplement what, you, what you're bringing to the table as a businessman in terms of capital. Um, and uh, But here, uh, instead of subsidizing an, an Amazon, which uh, you know, or a Walmart, uh, by giving them uh, you know free taxes for ten years or whatever, whatever they're going to do in Queens and here in New York for Amazon, you're actually uh, generating a new uh, uh, form of employment and of and, uh, and addressing the climate crisis, which affects everybody. So. Uh, 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 that's how that would would work in in theory. Uh, uh, you know, you're, you're you 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 would be uh, you know you'd be rewarded. You might have you might have. I mean, there's a thousand ways you can uh, 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 reward a, a business for investing. It's you know what it is. It's a it's a question of the of public the public will helping to direct private investment to meet the needs of people. Uh, this this is you know we have, live in a system in which the capital resources of the country are controlled by private institutions, banks and so on, and non-banking financial institutions, venture capitalists, hedge funds, et cetera, and so forth. They determine where the lifeblood, the capital lifeblood of the economy goes or doesn't go. They make that decision because they're owners of private property and have the right to do that. That's what property rights provide them with. Uh-huh. If you go Green New Deal route, you suddenly say, no, there's a public authority that's also going to play that game and, and tell you where you can invest or can invest or incentivize. It can't tell you where right. if you want to invest, but, but incentivize investments and therefore steer public investment, steer private investment into areas that meet uh, the needs of the whole community or society. Boy, that seems like such a, I mean, it's obviously not socialist or capitalist, and as Roosevelt did, really, save capitalism from itself by having, you know, and Roosevelt talked about having a capitalism that serves the public good. Exactly right. You know, he was treated by, you know, Roosevelt is to the manor born. He's a Hudson River yeah, yes. patroon. He, he had worked on Wall Street. He knew all these people who were viciously attacking him. You know, they called him everything from a syphilitic to, you know, to a cripple, to a Jew, to a... Traitor to his class. And these are the people, you know, they had good education. They used this kind of language. They were, they, it was a kind of bilious distemper of hatred for him. And he, he, he would say occasionally, you know, you guys even say, fight the way I'm saying it now, but said, don't you get it? I'm trying to save the system that has privileged you and your families for generations. Don't you understand that if we don't do these kinds of things and begin to, you know, make this a more egalitarian society, meet the needs not only of, the, of, of wealth, but of the common wheel, your, your, your days are numbered. Uh, but they didn't buy that for a long time. No, they didn't. But it did work. It did. I mean, there, there was, uh, you know, uh, there were communists at the time, fascists at the time, and, and he uh, was able to save capitalism from itself. For those who may have just tuned in, Burt Cohen here, show us Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest today, Steve Fraser. We're talking about the Green New Deal, what it has a possibility of doing and maybe helping Democrats get elected, helping to connect 
in hollowed out ghost towns where the Democrats aren't talking about it. Are there any Democratic candidates talking about this now? Candidates for president, I should say? I mean, yeah, I, I mean, uh, I think, uh, the two most notable, I think your listeners know, are, are Bernie Sanders, first of all, and, and Elizabeth Warren. I think others have also uh, lent their support to versions of the Green New Deal and are serious about addressing the climate crisis. In my mind, just my personal opinion, Sanders is the guy who has the deepest, most long-lived, most trustworthy commitment to this kind of outlook about a transformed America. See, what the, we often think of the Green New Deal as a climate climate change proposal, and it is, but it's much more than that. It's the New Deal part of the Green New Deal that sometimes gets forgotten. What they're saying is we want a society that begins to address all the various needs of, our, of, of working and normal, ordinary people in America. Included among those needs, obviously, is a healthy climate, but it's not the only need. That's why it encompasses health care, you know, universal health care, Medicare for all, if you will, a housing program, uh, a job creation program, and so on. In other words, we're saying we want a new deal that's also green. Um, and and, and, uh, and uh, I think Sanders, for my money, uh, is, is the one who has had the longest live commitment through all the, the all the desert years, you know, when yeah. nobody was <laughs> listening True. to that kind of talk in America. So uh, I, I think I think he's probably the most trusted. I don't mean he'll therefore be the president, right. but I think he's the most trusted politician in America because he's always been saying the same damn thing. And uh, whether it helped him or hurt him, now it happened, times have changed and it's helping him. So he's he's where I place my money. But Warren has also talked about uh, you know supports the Green New Deal, as have other people. Booker, uh, and, and, and I think Juan Castro has. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know it's. it's it's captured the imagination of the progressive wing of the party, the Democratic Party, a wing which is becoming more and more potent. Oh, they have to do so. battle with the old, with the DNC. There's no question about that. Uh, they don't want to see this happen. And if Biden doesn't make it, then the, you know the mayor, <laughs> the mayor of Fort Wayne, is their second choice. But um, yeah. you know they're 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 hoping this doesn't happen. But um, we'll see. You say you point out that the Green New Deal offers a chance to win back people who voted first for Barack Obama and then for Donald Trump. Yeah. Please say more about that, just a little bit. Well, I think what I, what I mean by that, what I, what I, uh, and I may be wrong, is that the people who voted twice for Obama and then voted for Trump are people who are, have, have, they and their families for now more than one generation have felt fallen on hard times and been taken for granted or ignored by the, the political establishment, both Republican and Democratic, uh, the Clinton Party and the, what's left of the old mainstream, whatever you want to call it, Republican Party. And I, I think, therefore, they have a lot of legitimate grievances, and they're searching for a way uh, 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 or for somebody who will address those grievances. They thought Obama might because he was a fresh face. Right. Uh, you know, he's very he's an inspiring speaker, yeah. and he, he seemed to generate this kind of enthusiasm. It was a vague enthusiasm, yeah. but it was an enthusiasm to say, let's do things differently. Yes, we can. You know, mm -hmm. whatever that was supposed to mean, I think inspired people, and it's why ordinary working.
working people in these, especially in these in the heartland industrial midsection of the country, uh, who had either been Reagan Democrats beginning with Reagan uh-huh. or had remained in the Democratic Party, uh, said, "Okay, I'll give Obama a chance. He's 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 new and different, and seems to be challenging the old way." And and I think they were disappointed in what came out of yeah. the Obama years. Sure. Um, Obama ended up being much more, I think, committed to the Clinton wing of the party than I think people may have realized when he was originally sure. elected. And so they came, these people I'm talking about, these these people who are now about to vote for Trump in 2016, let us say, mm-hmm. became disillusioned. And, and, so, and then they hear Trump. And Trump says, you know, Trump is invade now and then against Wall Street financiers and corporations. You know, he, he announces uh, they are traitors to the American working class. He's waging trade wars, presumably to uh, boost up American industry and therefore the jobs are working. People in that category who had voted for Obama and felt that they had been overlooked saw in Trump a guy who was contemptuous of an establishment that they too felt was a contemptuous of them right. and and uh, and and voted for him uh, but i think those people who have a, a, a lot of very legitimate grievances, those that can find in the Green New Deal. If you have a unified progressive Democratic Party cohering behind the Green New Deal and all the kind of um, real legitimate uh, programs it offers to close the wealth gap, to create jobs, to unionize the country, this can win over that working population, I believe. Oh, I, I sure hope it can. We just have to uh, convince the DNC, uh, which I don't think we can do. We have to work around them. What can people do now? Are you more optimistic? Optimistic or pessimistic that the rising for uh, the Green New Deal will have enough energy to make it happen? I'm going to be agnostic. I don't know. I, I, I see a lot of hopeful signs. You know, look at the labor movement, which, as in my article, I point out how important the labor movement was to the original New Deal and how weak it is today. And that's true. But on the other hand, you see all kinds of signs of a growing. Uh, militancy and and willingness to to struggle uh, in in among working people. You have, first of all, you have the whole living wage movement and the fact that municipalities all over the country have been passing these minimum wage laws or living wage laws, and that's been going on for five, six, eight, even ten years. And that's the result of of constant protest. You have the organizing of fast food workers. You have strikes uh, like the Chicago teachers' strike right. uh, uh, lately, where you have unions being willing to battle and not battle only for themselves but for the communities out of which they arise. So in the case of the Chicago teacher strike, they're, they're, and all the teacher strikes, look at those amazing teacher strikes that happened in all these red states uh, in the last year. And they year win. Or two. Um, they, they were saying, we're not just, we're being treated badly, but so too are the students and the parents and the communities. And, and this, is, this is the lifeblood, the future of our country. We're neglecting these kids' education. I mean, you know, these, these teachers, uh, they're working two jobs. Oh. They're paying for school supplies out of their own pocket. It's oh, a ridiculous yeah. situation. Uh, the, the public supports the teachers. They do. And the public supports the teachers after scapegoating the teachers yeah. for 10 years <laughs> or so. They are the reason we have a bad educational system. Suddenly people said, you know what? These teachers are breaking their asses. They're underfunded. And these, these state governments are completely controlled by these conservative Republican right-wing types. And um, so but what my point is that you have this growing power and willingness to, to struggle. The recent yes. general motor strike. So yes. it's both among very 
uh, unorganized workers, say fast food workers, and among more organized workers and more unlikely parts of the working class, like the teachers in these states. You know, there are teachers unions have been around for you know oh, yeah. seventy five years, but except for a few places, they haven't shown the incredible militancy that those strikers in Kentucky and West Virginia and Arizona yep. and so on uh, showed. So I'm I'm very encouraged by all of that, and the willingness to resist. I'm encouraged by the Sanders phenomenon. You know, it's unthinkable, uh, even. I don't know what, maybe 15 years ago, for a man who uh, uh, explicitly describes himself as a democratic socialist to even survive in political America. It was unthinkable. Yeah. From the cold, you know, that used to not be the case back in 19th, early 20th century America. There were plenty of socialists around. Yeah. But, you know, after that, and, and thanks to the Cold War, you don't, you don't say that kind of stuff in America. It's just verboten. <laughs> it's kind of linguistic cleansing. And then you get the Sanders phenomenon, and, and that's astounding. It wouldn't be in Europe, but it is no. here. And so that gives me a, a lot of hope and his popularity, you know. Yep. Uh, I mean, uh, and, is, is extraordinary, and especially among uh, among young people. We got to run. I hope they will buy my new book. It's this book of essays. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. I, I, this has been You're a very welcome. good conversation. Bye-bye. Thank you. Come on.